0: So hi, welcome or welcome back if you're a regular to the Institute of Performance Nutrition We Do Science podcast. This is episode 172 and I am Dr. Laurent Bannock, the, the host. Now today I had a great conversation. I always have great conversations, of course, and today's conversation was with Professor Kirsty Elliott Sale and Dr. Jose Arreta. And yes, you'll know those names if you have been listening to the podcast or you're a student or a researcher or a practitioner in the sport and exercise domain because these two are leading the way in a number of areas that relate to the theme that we will be focusing on in today's podcast discussion, which is on nutrition for female athletes. Now, in the past episodes that they have appeared in, Dr. Areta, for example, we talked about relative energy deficiency in great detail, a leading area of research for Dr. Areta, which of course we touch upon a little bit in this podcast, as well as substrate utilization and metabolism and so forth, all areas that Jose really knows his stuff on. And with Kirsty, of course, we talked about female athlete health, female physiology, and bone health and various other things, which of course you can listen about in all these previous podcasts that I will link to in the show notes for this particular episode about nutrition for female athletes. Now, look, it's a vast subject area and what we talked about today was really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we can actually talk about within the confines of an hour and a bit podcast, but also as it relates to all the knowledge, all the information, all the evidence on this topic That has come to light and will come to light. And we talk about that in detail. We talk about the quality versus the quantity of that evidence. We talk about some really intriguing areas about what differentiates males from females. Is that even relevant in the context of athletes and performance, and in particular, nutrition? And the many, many nuances. That relate to human health and performance, which we, of course, get into in pretty much every podcast that I've ever done because it's all about context once again. And I won't hold back on that because that's what we're going to get into. It's all about context, contextualization. Is it relevant for practice being something that I'm obsessed with. So anyway, before I let you listen to this conversation with Dr. Aretta and Kirsty Elliott-Sell, Professor Kirsty Elliott-Sell, please do go check out our website at www.theiopn.com. It's undergoing a lot of changes. If you've not checked it out recently, you'll see a lot of updates to various parts of the site. We've got a whole new section on the podcast coming soon, but there is still a a place for the podcast there where you can find the most recent episodes and access to to notes. But all of the nearly 200 episodes, or at least it will be soon, 200 episodes, because I've got many new ones lined up, but you'll be pleased to hear, will be appearing on the website too in a new format. But most importantly, completely updated section relating to our diploma will be there. You can learn all about our advanced program in sport and exercise nutrition practice our diploma in performance nutrition which strength conditioning coaches nutritionists dietitians personal trainers people with or without advanced degrees phds and so on are all taking part in our program in fact you can read about some of their success stories on our new blog on our website where you can see what has happened to a number of our, our graduates which we are adding to on a a monthly basis. So come back and check that out. And of course, our software, Sempro, dedicated to support you in your work as a performance nutritionist or as a sports nutrition focused practitioner, working either in private practice, team settings, group coaching, online, please check out our platform there. It's really unique and you won't find Anything quite like it to support you as a performance nutritionist or as a sports nutrition coach. So anyway, that's it. All of that's at www.theiopn.com. Now here is my conversation with Dr. Aretta and Professor Kirsty Elliott Sell on nutrition for female athletes. Hi and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. Now today I've got Two guests who've been on on before. I love these guys in many different ways. And again, I, I've said this many a time. Half the time I do these podcasts is just selfishly because I enjoy talking about, about this stuff and these two really know their stuff as it relates to today's focus, which is gonna be on nutrition and female athletes. Now, before we, we get into this topic in any further depth, I just wanted to say hi and welcome, Kirsty, welcome back. Kirsty, and welcome back Jose how are you both doing?
1: Good good thank you honestly thanks so much for for having me back I love coming on and chatting with you and yeah um, trying to sort of you know unpick some of these topics with you is, is always fun and, and we always get something interesting out of it so yeah thanks for having me back.
0: Yeah well no no thank you and Jose I'm ashamed I've forgotten what podcast episode numbers I should be super prepared and start firing them out but as I said, you've both been on here uh, a number of times in, in various capacities. And Jose, you've you've stayed put where you are in Liverpool, John Moores. Um, but why don't you just give us a, a quick overview as to what you're doing and where you're based, etc.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, Lauren, again for, for this invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with you again. Yeah, as you well said, I'm based in Liverpool since like it's going to be four years now. I can't believe it. It's, been, it's gone so quick. I suppose that's a, uh, that's a good thing. So yeah, I'm, I've been here since 2018, sort of uh, slowly focusing my research more in the area of low energy availability, sort of making it one of my areas of research. But of course, I've done some applied work and, you know, what currently have some lines of working for female uh, nutrition and, and so on. So, uh, of course, uh, one of the focus of my research has been around like muscle glycogen, which is a, sort of a topic that I always really really like so uh, we're still doing some research in that area as well so yeah thanks uh, for inviting us to talk about this sort of special edition that we did uh, with Kirsty in uh, the European, uh, European Journal of Spot science really a pleasure to talk about this
0: yeah no great well I can't wait to delve into this this topic with you guys and and Kirsty of course you'll know newbie to this to this podcast we've talked about all sorts of things although it is always been related uh, in one form or another to female physiology or, or female sort of nutrition requirements so there has been a consistency there and we'll sort of evolve that a bit further in today's conversation but you've moved so why don't you just tell us about that because there's some new you've got news which not everyone <laughs> will know I guess
1: yeah, so so the news headline is, is that I'm moving to Manchester uh, Metropolitan University, so MMU, and yeah, joining the new Institute of Sport there, which is super exciting. And yeah, in this position, I'll be sort of driving the research agenda in, in female athletes, no surprise there. So, you know, you're right. Every time I come on, that's, you know, my topic. I like a broken record. Um, But hopefully, as I say, I I always try try to bring something new to to each conversation. And, you know, it's certainly an evolving area. It's a really dynamic, evolving area, a hot topic, of course, right now, particularly in nutrition. So, yeah, it'll be be interesting to speak about some, you know, current controversies or, you know, ways in which we can improve this area. So, yeah, so new digs, new place, but still, you know, same area of research and, and really exciting to get stuck into that at MMU and the new institute.
0: What I find quite interesting about what you're doing, for example, is it, is it does illustrate the level of movement and change that obviously is happening to you personally in your own career, etc. But, but also in the industry in general, we are seeing quite a lot of sort of development and movement as it relates to increased research. There's new departments popping up here and there not just obviously in the UK, but but globally, there are some countries that have, yes, lots of great research facilities in sort of medical, public health and so on, but have not necessarily been that invested in human performance or particularly sport and exercise nutrition. We're now starting to see that in all four corners of the world. Um, although it is fair to say that the UK is still a significant stronghold for this particular area of sport and exercise science and you know both of you are significant contributors of course to that work which i guess there are several areas that are particularly topical right now in performance nutrition sports science sports medicine and so on which of course is is female health female nutrition in particular and definitely the whole sort of energy deficiency topic has exploded in the last number of years and i've been it's been great to have you both on actually in your separate capacities talking about these topics which I'll reference in the podcast as well as other guest experts that have come on to talk about this stuff but it does just blow my mind even after all these years now that I've been doing this podcast just how how much stuff is going on in our field and that's great I guess for both of you is that it remains exciting and motivating even if we do have pandemics and various other things that are going on just quickly because while I'm on this topic I know you're both you know, you're at a powerhouse for sport and exercise, science research, Jose and Kirsty. you've been also very much at that forefront in your past institution and where you're going with this new opportunity is just mind boggling. But where do you see, where do you see this going? I mean, do you think we're in a state of sort of explosion in this area? Or do you feel we're still not at the forefront where we should be, perhaps, relative to other areas of sport and exercise science, given the growth of sports psychology, analysis, that sort of thing? Kirsty, I'll ask you that one first.
1: Oh that's a big question. Not yeah, political.
0: I... We'll avoid any political. <laughs>
1: yes, problems, absolutely. Yeah. I definitely think we're moving in the right direction. So I do I see a huge increase in the quantity of research being conducted in I guess female athletes in general or sort of female physiology female sport and exercise science but also in in female specific nutrition. And so I think that's been driven by a number of things. So I think you know having reached pretty much parity in the last Olympics in terms of female participation. I think that's really changed the landscape of how, you know, academics and practitioners are now sort of honour bound to put as much effort into providing that support and evidence based practice to female athletes as they have done for, for males in the past. So, yeah, I do see a lot more quantity oh God, you know what I'm going to say. I've only just started, but here she goes. Unfortunately, I still think we're lacking a little bit of the quality. And rather than sort of go into some sort of negative rant, as I have sometimes done in the past, I think what you've just described, this evolution of sport and exercise science, sport and exercise nutrition, I actually think you've hit the nail on the head there with female-specific nutrition in so much as we're historically we've not taught female specific physiology nutrition at undergraduate level so therefore in a way it's not too surprising that there isn't sort of a wave of high quality female specific research because actually how do you go about doing high quality research if you don't have that underpinning sort of knowledge or that underpinning training so I think pushing it all together I think yeah, there's an evolution now coming at universities. I see female-specific topics, modules, you know, creeping into the curriculum at undergraduate. I think you're going to start seeing a lot more masters specifically in, in sort of female physiology, female nutrition. That's really going to change, I think, the landscape. Of course, we see PhD students and, and myself included, although 20 years ago, you know, then focusing in this. And hopefully we'll get a new generation of well-trained sport and exercise scientists, nutritionists that can then take that into high quality research. So I'm not going negative today. I'm going positive. There's a big increase in quantity. And I think the quality will come if we invest in the entire networking area and not just obviously push that onto research. I think it's got to be from going in an undergraduate level the whole way up.
0: Yeah, it's not It's not negative. I understand why you say that because so many previous guests have said the same thing. I and mean, we're going back years. I go back all the way to quite a few years ago where John Hawley was on, Professor John Hawley, and he was talking about his concerns about the lack of sports science, sports nutrition research that's done from the perspective of an integrative physiology or integrated biological approach to reductionist, all that stuff, which we won't spend time on now. But making sure that what we're doing is is relevant to the people that we're trying to advise as as practitioners is, is central to what is called evidence-based practice, or I prefer evidence-informed practice, but either which way, what we're questioning is evidence. And yes, there's the quality of evidence. There's good, bad, the quality question there, but the ability to contextualize that information to make it actually relevant to the context the situations that you're dealing with is something that we've barely started to do of course and that's that's really what you're you're saying and that that can only be for the benefit of practitioners
1: yeah absolutely i mean i think with high quality evidence comes confidence, you know, for practitioners to, to take that information and to translate it into their practice. And I think that's really, really important. So I think in the female space, you know, particularly in nutrition, what we want to see are a number of well-conducted sort of laboratory studies that show findings that are in the same you know direction. And of the same magnitude, you know, because, again, I've said this in the past, sometimes, particularly with social media and and, and social media can be great. Actually, I'm a big fan. You you know that, Lauren, I, I do. I really love Twitter. But as a practitioner, particularly at the elite level, would you want to change your whole practice based on one study? Probably not. And I think, you know, recently in research, everybody's looking for novelty. And I'm like, hang on a second. Actually, let's have some confirmatory studies. Let's have a number of studies showing, you know, a change in the same direction of a similar magnitude so we can go back to the practitioners with a little bit more confidence and say, you know, we're seeing this now on more than one occasion. We're now finding this is a predictable response. You can take take that into your practice so actually I think more you know so now than ever before I see a real relationship now between practitioners and researchers and personally in my own career I've closed that gap a little bit because I've been guilty of it you know first 10 years of my career very academic very laboratory based very reductionist and it's only in the last five to 10 years thankfully because sort of I think practice you know and practitioners have approached me athlete and it's really increased, actually, the quality of my research. You know, I think sometimes people are afraid if they try and, you know, work with practice, that means, oh, down, you know, grading their quality. But actually, it's really increased mine because it makes it, the increases the real-world application and so on. So, yeah, I think more so than ever now, this is the way that we can, we can move forward together.
0: This topic, this idea of quantity, quality, we'd swing across to cost-to-benefit type conversations as well, but... When, again, I use the word evidence-based practice, and a key to that is ensuring that you are meeting the needs and the preferences of your individuals that you're working with, even if it's a team, it's still a team of individuals, right? And what we're going to talk about here is going to be really very relevant to this idea of quantity, quality, relevance, and so on. So I bring this across to you, Jose, because I think the opening line of the abstract, of the introductory article in this special series that was published on nutrition for female athletes what we know what we don't know and why which i'll link to to all of this and i'll just just paraphrase this because i'll read this out because i think it's just such an important mind-boggling statement if you really think about this so men are often considered as the default sex for studies in sports nutrition in fact most of the seminal work today in sports nutrition has been exclusively conducted on on male participants right so that's mind-boggling when you do consider just how many athletes we have that are elite and even that we can break that down to actually elite and maybe college elite but not necessarily olympic elite old young uh, all the different types of sports this that and the other but obviously we we come to this point of gender male and female and yet so much of this being generalized in sports nutrition where we talk about muscle protein synthesis and we we don't talk about the muscle being belonging to a male or a female or to an older or younger person obviously we've started to do this now but it really starts to become quite interesting so jose why don't you tell us then why that opening statement is so important and i guess just generally speaking why this special edition Became necessary in the first place in this day and age, 2022.
2: <laughs> yeah, thank you for the question, and uh, I think maybe the answer in the first instance is my love for maybe for philosophy and the, the existentialist in particular. But that's a statement of uh, Simone de Beauvoir that says that man you know, or man is, is considered default, while woman is being considered like the other. I think this is important because uh, historically it's been sort of so the societal norm where how things have been thought and how you know through through time this has been has been changing and i think that what we see now in sort of spot science and you know sports nutrition and so on is a consequence of a lot of other changes and sort of a, a more society level and it's not the only area where we see this change uh, if you for example focus on, on more like um, medical research as well you know this is happening exactly the same thing it is it's a different area where the same thing is happening so why this is important today, as Kirsty watts said before, is that in 2021 in the 2020 Olympics, you know there was almost parity in terms of participation of males and females. Which this is huge difference from what it was in like sort of 1900, which was like two percent participation of, of females. But the research specific in in females still very much lagging behind, where you know there's six percent of the research use uh, female participants only like the, the, the more relevant research in sort of sport science if you look at research that uses like both males and females it's about like you know 31% but when you look at the total amount of participants that have been researched in this sort of sport science area it's still about like around 34-35% of the total amount of participants being female. So we're we're still very, very far behind in terms of like characterizing the I think Kirsty would be better placed than myself talking about the sort of more female specific physiology uh, knowledge in, in terms of like females. But definitely when it comes to, to sports nutrition, one of the things that we wanted to do with this uh, special edition was highlighting maybe then what we know and what we don't know on what we think are pillars in in uh, sports nutrition that's why we selected a a range of topics of things as important as substrate metabolism uh, going through like hydration and energy availability making weight supplement use and gut health you know all things that we are like we think are all very important that basically Uh, form the foundations of uh, sports nutrition and why we wanted to do this was not only to try to showcase whatever new research there was out there but also and more importantly highlight there was not there or what we think this should be there in terms of like knowing what
0: should be specific for females and what is not. So what's coming to me at this point is something that I think that we should discuss before we really get into you know as you say for the title here what we actually know what we don't know and why right so i want to get into that but before we do that i think it'd be worth us and Kirsty, i'm going to throw this one at you it seems ridiculous to have to ask this question but i think we actually need to define what we actually mean by a female athlete uh I hear myself saying that and it's like that's funny, but it's not because it's important that we actually do that. And then I think we we can go from, from there on the basis that my second sort of point of that would be that, you know, do we have more in common as human beings? Or is there on a basic level, which of course we're gonna unravel, this concept of of being male or female, at what point does that actually become relevant, just on a on a general level? Because obviously we'll unwrap that.
1: Great question questions. And, and you said it was a, you know, a, an unusual question. It's not because I've been really questioning um, publicly, which, yeah, I've had mixed reactions to this, but I've recently been asking researchers, what do they mean by a sex difference study? So, so there's a question and people are like, what do you mean by that? Well, that would be, you know, male, female, men, women. And I'm like, okay, I get that. I do get that. But my question is, but which woman do you take to compare to the man? And I think that then really relates to the question you've just asked me. So, so yeah, you can have sex different studies where you really just take, it's the most sim- simplistic division, isn't it? You're a man, you're a woman, and we'll compare some response. Okay. And as I said, that, I still haven't got an answer to my question and I've never done a sex difference or a sex comparison study. And if I were to, I don't know which type of woman I would choose. So here, let's unpick which type of woman I would choose, because that maybe sounds a little odd to, to some listeners. So if we take women, the interesting thing, well, I think is very interesting, the interesting thing about women is this sort of almost or potentially almost constantly changing hormonal profile or hormonal status so both of course you know males and females go through puberty and and we get that so that's in common so up until puberty if you are working with children you could treat them the same in most respects related to sport and exercise science and nutrition at puberty of course that's the big change you know the big change of course I'm not going to talk about male physiology but you know of course an increase in testosterone xyz okay Let's look at women. So women there, the the thing that happens is the instigation of the menstrual cycle. Okay, so that would be considered, I guess, in some ways to be the body's default setting. So you transition through puberty and the aim is to lock in a menstrual cycle. So a predictable pattern of changes in estrogen and progesterone. And of course, they're there to facilitate pregnancy. So, So that's what the aim is. And so then this is where it gets interesting. We must be really careful in sport and exercise science and nutrition, not to think that the default setting for all female athletes are menstrual cycles. They're not. So you do. Everybody starts off by hopefully getting the menstrual cycle. When the menstrual cycle is there, then, of course, there are choices or there are conditions to that. So some athletes might choose to use hormonal contraceptives. And then that completely wipes out that repeating pattern that we see in the menstrual cycle. And it gives a significantly different hormonal profile. So that would be for me, if we're taking menstrual cycle as one group of women, the next group would be hormonal contraceptive users. Now, I won't go into a big monologue about all the different types of hormonal contraceptives, but just for the listeners to appreciate that we're calling that a group, but there are many different types. It's a lot of diversity within that group, but they're the second, I would say, biggest group. Of women. Then the sort of third group that we would need to consider when we're thinking about post pubertal sort of adolescent and adult women Are those with menstrual irregularities so for example if puberty didn't go as expected there could be primary amenorrhea so we don't get that menstrual cycle and menstruation we have a menstrual dysfunction or it could be athletes who have had a menstrual cycle and then for whatever reason have some sort of menstrual irregularity or dysfunction so amenorrhea again probably secondary amenorrhea is the one that we'll talk about a bit today Potentially linked with low energy availability, but there are others. So there are luteal phase deficiencies and ovulatory cycles, X, Y, and Z. And a little bit like hormonal contraceptive users, let's just say that menstrual dysfunction is the umbrella term for the third group of women we should consider, but there's a lot of diversity in there. So they're the three biggest groups we'll see probably in an athletic population. So it goes back to that when we make a sex comparison, Who should we compare the men to? Menstrual cycle. And if we use menstrual cycle athletes, which phase of the menstrual cycle? Okay, so although it's a 28 day cycle, you know, we could say that there are six distinct phases there. So is it, you know, that group? Do we compare them to hormonal contraceptive users? Do we compare them to those at menstrual dysfunction? I will mention two other groups quickly. If we're talking about adult women, of course, we could throw in pregnancy as another group. OK, probably less common in really elite sport, although we we'll, we were luckily we're now seeing more female athletes, you know, participate longer during their pregnancy and return quickly following pregnancy. So I think nutrition practitioners will have to consider, you know, that group, too. And then if you work with sort of older or master level athletes, then the menopause is yet again another different hormonal profile. So let me pull that back into maybe one summary sentence and answer to your question. Which type of female athlete you have that needs to be, you know, they need to be profiled. And I would say the biggest groups are those with menstrual cycles, those that use hormonal contraceptives, those at menstrual dysfunctions, and then less commonly pregnant athletes and postmenopausal athletes. And that has to be stated because that's the population you're taking into your research or into your practice. And given they all have significantly different hormonal profiles, A, from each other, and then B, from men, that's, I think, the thing that we have to consider when we try to make female-specific recommendations.
0: And of course, there's going to be not just differences between those groups but there's going to be significant within group oh, variation yeah. too isn't there so i didn't, I didn't just want to blow world. your
1: minds even more but but that <laughs> is the thing so as you rightly say you know we have between sex differences we have between women or between yeah but it's indelicately phrased but between women but we also have that within an individual you know but within a a sort of a female themselves so for example a cycle length can change from you know 27 days next time it's 31 days and the next time it's 34 days so you can have that or you can also have you know within a a woman you can go from having a menstrual cycle to next month starting to take an oral contraceptive pill taking it for three months stopping it so it can be quite the sort of variability is is huge so yeah we're we're looking at between sexes between women and within an individual woman. And so, yeah, we we definitely, there is a, a level of complexity there, but it, it goes back to our original point. If we educate people about all of these things, then we'll do better in the future. So it is changing the landscape, almost if I can sort of take a, a sporting reference, but we need to start grassroots here and, you know, change it the whole way through before we really see top class, you know, evidence-informed practice for female athletes.
2: Regardless of the comparison, I think we can all agree that yeah, women are not small men <laughs>
1: <laughs> no no but I, I, you know that, that's true because actually from a, a nutrition or a physiology perspective we would just deal with that with the a scaling you know we, we would just change you know whether it was the amount of protein you know we would scale that relevant to lean body mass etc cetera, etc cetera. so no i mean i i think that that whole sort of saying is is very very obsolete i i think for me it's not a size difference it's very much a for me, of course, and it's only my viewpoint, it's driven by the changes and the diversity in hormone profiles. But, you know, if you've got got a psychologist in here, Lauren, they would then be talking about, again, those differences between sex and sort of more psychological outcomes. But, yeah, size, size doesn't matter at all. There we go. Let's put that out there. Oh, that
0: Yeah, I'm not going down that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but what I do want to say is, because my interest in this is very much about where we get, Information from that influences our practice and how we fundamentally impact our clients and subsequently, you know, the rest of their careers, their lives, and so on, beyond just their health, obviously, which is clearly the most important thing, which is rooted very much into what we're going to talk about today. But, Jose, the reason why I'm interested in this is because we're talking about what we know now and we're talking about how these factors will add to the filtering mechanisms of the lens that we use as scientists, researchers, practitioners on these sorts of topics as it relates to females. But we've got to go back decades of sport and exercise science research, and there's all this stuff that we've just assumed about nutritional needs for people, what constitutes as roughly the right amount of protein that an athlete should have to support muscle protein synthesis we've got a whole range of advice that's coming out for carbohydrate needs glycogen restoration that sort of thing and obviously an area that you're particularly familiar with as an expert on low energy availability how do you deal with that when so much of what we now know is based on reference man and not reference woman whatever that is anyway that's that's a very difficult question to answer. So to put things in in
2: context a, a little bit, and as you say, we need to go back a little bit in time and pretty much to the sort of birth of sports nutrition as a discipline, which is these studies that were carried in the sixties in relation to diet and physical capacity. You know, where it was very very clear clearly shown that uh, muscle glycogen content was directly related to the capacity to do work at a uh, higher intensities and I suppose that's what triggered the the, the whole interest and in, like what can we do with, with diet to make performance better and that's, that's sort of the, the origin of it. It's not that it's, this hasn't been, you know, studied before. It's like probably uh, late 19th century that, you know, things were already very clear in terms of relationship between, between diet and substrate use and, and so on. But, you know, in the 60s and so on became, became very, very clear. And as you're saying, all the research there was like, was carried, you know, conducted by men. All the participants were, were men. And that's what sort of became sort of the, the norm without even. You know, if you read these studies, I don't think there's any reference of like, oh, maybe maybe in in females, for whatever reason, this is different. For whatever parameter you want to consider, you know, from anatomical differences to, you know, physiological endocrine differences, can this have uh, an effect on it? Of course, there's a lot of commonalities between, I mean, we're we're both still, still human, regardless of the sex or gender, but it's important to, to still realize that there's a lot of commonalities between the two. So it's not that you know one one is from Mars and the other one is is from Venus, but you know there there are there are dif- differences. To what extent these differences can have make a difference in terms of improving performance and you know one and or, or changing the sort of physiological adaptations to to training. And I think. This is what we are able to highlight in this special issue that that we co-edited with with Kirsty. That we still need a lot of evidence to to prove that what, uh, men and women are different in certain aspects. So far, I don't think we have all the experts that we invited to this to write the papers for this special issue. What they highlight is the fact that. Uh, well, there seems to be uh, there's clear differences in some aspects in terms of like physiology, endocrine, you know, substrate use, and so on between males and females. But the common message seems to be that we still need more evidence to be able to make evidence based re- recommendations. So far, with the evidence we've got, you know, for the majority of the aspects related to sports nutrition, we don't have a a very clear base of evidence to say okay women should be doing something completely different different to men but there are there are definitely differences and you know we're probably we're going to touch on the area of low energy availability before but this is one area you know that's been it's probably the only area that has been more studied in in females and in males but we know that women seem to be more susceptible to the effects of low energy availability than men. And this is something that you have to be particularly careful when you're working with, with female athletes, for example.
0: Yeah, and I guess some of this is a question of where in this sort of maze, this puzzle, do you start? Do you start with the person I'm advising is a human being? Do I start with they're a female? Do I start with they're an endurance athlete? It gets complicated particularly from a practitioner's perspective, especially when the reality is, is in practice, there is a limit to the amount of time you might have with an individual. Okay. In private practice, you can have no end of limits on your time, but in a team sport setting, whether it's a cycling team to a football team, there can be distinct limits to the amount of time that you have to, to understand the nuances that, that makes up an individual, particularly when we you know, w- when we talk about things like low energy availability or the differences in hormones, which isn't necessarily as easy to determine just in a five minute conversation or a quick look at somebody's diet, that they've told you essentially what you want to hear, not necessarily what it is that they're actually doing. Kirsty, you talk about quality and quantity of studies which I think is is, is central to this because we're talking about things you know how how much can we how much confidence can we have in this information and how how much significance should we put into that to put all our trust in when it comes to to following this path what what are your thoughts on that
1: okay so yeah i am I'm, I'm not going to pull any punches here so i would say that you know right now today there are currently no evidence based guidelines that are fit for purpose to to take into an applied setting there's just not it's, sufficient high quality information to write the guidelines. So I think that that's for me that's fact. And so I think you know what what we have we we've got to find a way to move forward, right? We can't just say to our athletes, okay you know, let's just all stand still and, and wait for researchers to to throw out these high quality studies. So I think we, we have to do sort of something in between. So I would still say that, you know, you should feel for the demands of the sport. That's what I would go with first, because so you were saying, what do we do? Do we go with the human, the sport? So I, I would still go for sort of, I guess, a more human stroke sport priority first. So in the absence of that high quality evidence, I would say, Fuel for the demands of the sport, which in a, in a way is a concept that is is sort of sexless. So, you know, we think that this sport demands this and, and therefore that would be a good sort of guiding principle. I think then the next layer down, when, when we want to come to something that's more female specific, I think there are two ways to look at it. And so up until now, I think our conversation has been looking at, I guess, a, a biological or a sort of physiological pathway. If you change estrogen or progesterone, what's its sort of linked to a change, you know, in substrate metabolism and any aspect of sort of physiological functioning. So, But that's only one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is if you change the concentration of estrogen and progesterone, they lead to often symptoms and side effects and they can be again physical or sort of more emotional psychological sort of symptoms and side effects so it could well be actually that we're looking at you know a change in estrogen causes fatigue or causes anxiety or causes cramps or headaches and actually it's those things those symptoms and side effects that limits a person's ability to train and compete so when we look at it we need to look at it two ways you know so that this direct biological pathway this hormone does it have this effect on substrate metabolism for example or does this hormone have an effect on how we feel or you know the perception of work or intensity and therefore that has a, a different outcome so i think taking all these things together how do we move forward in the space right now in the absence of these sort of you know high quality research guidelines I would then go to the lived experiences of the athlete. So even if you have five minutes or 10 minutes or an hour with that athlete who's in front of you, I'm talking now specifically female athletes, go in with your fuel for the demands of the sport, but then go into sort of the more the nuances of being female, ask them, what hormonal profile are you? Oh, I'm, I'm meant to recycle. Okay, do you have any symptoms and side effects each month? Is there a particular time of that month where you notice this always happens to you, X, Y, and Z? And then you can start to maybe tailor some of your nutrition, make, you know, nuanced adjustments to, you know, well... At this time, when you feel fatigued, we're going to go with this nutritional strategy. So I think asking them about their lived experiences is really important. So asking them which hormonal profile they are, asking them, is there something predictable? And and we tend to see that pattern recognition is, is specifically relevant for menstrual cycle. The other two groups, so those at menstrual dysfunction, because of the dysfunction, it's hard to see a pattern. So, again, and and I'm going to sort of link the dysfunctions to things like low energy availability. There you're looking for a nutritional strategy which gets them out of low energy availability. Come on, let's face it, that's the end goal there before we start to look at changes that might, you know, in nutrition that might affect performance. The priority there is to get them out of low energy availability. And then with hormonal contraceptive users, again, there's not really going to be a pattern there because their hormonal profile is is fairly stable. But it's looking to see, you know, again, if they've got any sort of symptoms or, you know, things associated, negative connotations with their hormonal contraceptive use and seeing if you can use nutrition as a strategy to overcome some of those, of course there may be positives associated with their hormonal profiles. And if you can, again, see those, then maximize that with any strategies. So I would say right now, take home message, no fit for purpose evidence-based guidelines right now because of the lack of quality and quantity in research evidence. But all is not lost. Go to the lived experience of athletes, work with them to see patterns maybe linked with their ovarian hormone profiles and do that. Now, one more thing I'm going to say on this point. Not all women are affected by these hormones. So actually, don't look for a problem that might not exist. It may well be that for many female athletes, they can take the... Same nutritional strategies as men so just be careful we don't need to blanket all female athletes and say you all have problems you all need fixing you all need something female specific many don't and so just recognizing that i think is very empowering so do a little bit of work with them it will come out in their lived experiences if they're not affected by things that we consider to be female-specific, so the changes in hormones, leave them alone and go with the other guiding principles. But if they do have lived experiences, which maybe have got patterns or are particularly bad at a, at a point, then we can look to intervene on, a, on, And as you say, on an individual basis, because even in a team sport, they are still individuals.
0: Yeah, and, and that's if- fascinating. That is because, you know, the danger, of course, is prejudicing our... Assumptions of an athlete's needs on the basis of their gender—it's dangerous, isn't it? Because they might not. Of course, you've now made it even more complicated.
1: <laughs> well, I hope. I, I hope. Well, maybe I have. Yeah, I, I always end up making it more complicated. But I sort of want to give free people the freedom to recognise that this isn't for all female athletes, and actually, you know, given the diversity in hormone profiles. It may well be we might never get this universal blueprint, this you know universal guidance that we can give to female athletes because of that diversity because we're not going to have a male rule book and a, you know a female rule book because of we said of all those different categories of females. Does that mean that we need like ten different books for ten different profiles of women? I don't know, maybe we are adding too much complexity. I think the likelihood is, and I think Jose sort of mentioned this earlier we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as the saying goes. A lot of the principles will hold true. A lot of what we know will be true. But it's the nuanced differences that we can make, you know, and and those little sort of marginal gains. And I know not all sort of People who work in the high performance network like that term. But, you know, marginal gains are very important at the elite level. And so for a female athlete who maybe does have a particular phase of the menstrual cycle where something is is not, you know, at its optimal level and we can do a strategy. That could be the difference between the podium and not or gold and bronze. And so I think it is worth, you know, continuing to dig in the lab, you know, and pull on that string. And also by listening to the lived experiences, because actually that could make a big difference. But yeah, there's a lot to consider here. And although I don't want people to switch off or be overwhelmed by some of this complexity, I think if you don't consider the complexity, then you're going to, you know, end up whitewashing, you know, being inappropriate, taking, you know, trying to do a one size fits all. And and that will not work here. One size will not fit all when it comes to women.
0: Yeah, I guess it's, you know, we need to bear in mind that the bigger picture from the sort of the guiding principles, sound, sensible guiding principles of of nutrition advice for for athletes is still going to be the sort of the total type and timing type of perspective we've very much got to individualize based on needs, preferences, circumstances, and all these other things. But there does come a point where these nuances, as you as you say, can become the influencing factors in a degree of success or failure in training outcomes, or in particular performance outcomes in certain people, which I guess is more likely to be in the elite, more extreme ends of that area. But but Jose in this collection of papers there's some fascinating they're all fascinating papers whether we're looking at substrate metabolism or specifically fueling strategies for female athletes the whole concept of low energy availability we've done a podcast with you all about that of course and and Kirsty we you know we've looked at female athlete health not just performance but health we looked at uh, bone Health and so on with your partner in crime, of course, Professor Craig Sell. We've we've done podcasts about that sort of thing. Yes, of course, we have to consider supplement strategies and so on. But of course, I don't have in front of me now, but but the paper on making weight, an area that I find particularly fascinating in female combat athletes, for example. You know, a point was made by Cole Langing Evans et al. in there about we still need to individualize everything to the individual, of course. But but Jose There are a number of things that when you read through these different papers that stand out, and I guess, you know, there's the hormonal, the varying hormonal sort of influence on things like potentially substrate metabolism or so on, I think does start to get rather interesting. What are those those areas with things like substrate metabolism and energy availability that you find so fascinating, particularly in female athletes, Jose, in your own work?
2: Well, I think that that's that's a great question, and this this comes down to, to, to my to my liking, I suppose, the question that that you're asking me. But I think you know, and this is to underscore what Kirsty mentioned before the importance of, of of fueling, and the sort of the, the physiological implications of not fueling properly. Of course, we're having an approach here that is purely sort of physiological to to the matter. But we we know that really is a lot more complex than that. When we are working sort of the real world with, with athletes on how to put through the message of what is the right thing to do. What I really find fascinating reading really, my own area of work is how sort of not feeling appropriately can have a sort of very deep endocrine and physiological effect on, on how we are, how we are being sort of addressed and how we uh, respond to, 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 to training and and how this affects performance of course one of the things that you know is, is very very clear and this is very uh, much related to my uh, area of interest also in muscle glycogen is the importance of carbohydrates for performance and this is again along the lines of what Kirsty was mentioning in terms of fueling it's remarkable the mismatch between exercise energy expenditure and energy intake particularly in sports with high energy demands. And I think one of the things that I find interesting is uh, how most athletes really don't feel the way they need to uh, be able to keep up with their training. And of course, this is a quite complex area because we know that sometimes we need to withdraw a little bit of energy to adjust, you know, body weight and body composition to certain sort of type of needs. But also uh, we need that fuel to perform at our best. So it's it's very much a balancing act you know this this complex. I think in general it's been thought as a very much a black and, and white sort of area where like energy balance is sort of the, the the thing that should be achieved at all times. And energy deficit is this, this evil that needs to be avoided. And I think you know what I find fascinating is that reality is a lot more colorful. And we I think we have to dive into these nuances and understand the complexities of it to make the right choice at the right time, depending on what the demands are of the athlete and the and the sport and the sex or gender. Or, you know, there are a lot of things that have to be considered to be able to make the right choice. But as a general rule, I think going back again to fueling, I think this is one of the things that even though it's uh, so clear, you know, that carbohydrates are important, particularly for high-intensity, sort of this high-intensity parts of any sport pretty much. And we know that most most sports are won in moments of any sort of winning move is related to high intensity. We need those carbohydrates for the performance. So it's been a bit, a bit of a roundabout answer to your question, but I think there are many things uh, that are, are very important to consider in terms of like what is important and what is so fascinating about this topic.
0: So I think it, it, that was great. And what I love about that is very much the strong argument as to as to why we need to consider this, and I guess again particularly in athletes, those that are aiming to achieve something significant with their their performance and their physical outputs. But but Kirsty, what, what about if we choose to ignore these differences? What 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 are the consequences that for you are real red flags that we really must take into account?
2: I'm not sure if I understand the question. Would you be able to to reword it? (laughs) Sorry.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm just simply saying that we're very much focused at understanding the the differences or the specific needs of, of the female athlete because what we're looking to do is enhance adaptations to training and to performance ultimately, whereby ignoring that fact may not result in those Elite performances that we're looking to gain in our athletes because we're very outcome focused in that. But but yeah. what are the consequences? I'm aiming this at Kirsty Moore at this point of not taking that into account. What are the risks?
1: Great question. And before I I answer it, I, I'm going to give you a little bit of background to to this special edition because I think what I'm going to say will sort of add to, to the answer. So when we, when Jose and I were, you know, considering who might we invite to, to write these papers, and of course, with the special edition, there are reviews, there are sort of little opinion pieces, you know, there's sort of a temptation or, or maybe historically, you sort of go for people who are well known in the area, you know, and a lot of benefits come with that. So if they're well known, and they've published a lot, they've got experience, and they can speak with confidence, you know, with of experience and, and a lot of sort of underpinning knowledge. But actually, whilst that's great, and and we did do that to, to some extent, we also wanted to sort of ferret out some people who maybe hadn't done a lot of research in female athletes, but who were quite prolific within sort of sports nutrition. And, you know, sort of to challenge them almost a little bit to say, well, you sort of really mostly research in men, you know, maybe on a particular supplement what do you know about females? And, you know, why haven't you turned your attention to them? And, you know, and so it was almost like sort of setting some researchers a bit of homework. And, and they were great. All of our authors were, were fantastic. Josie and I were, were so pleased how willing they were to do this. And so, yeah, so many of the groups, you know, went away and took their area, which they'd probably 99% only conducted in in males themselves as as researchers, and then started to try and find research in their field on females, you know, and, and then unpicked that. And that was really interesting. And that threw up some things, you know, and feedback from the authors of, gosh, you know, why have I not been researching in women? And, you know, what are the difficulties? What are the challenges of using females? And like you said, coming back to your question, what are the pitfalls? If we continue just to do our research in supplements or energy availability or gut health in men, what are we going to miss out on? So I think the the answer to your question is, in addition to those performance outcomes, it's health, isn't it? And particularly if we take the example of low energy availability, and Jose already said this, it seems like women are more susceptible to the adverse health effects of low energy availability. So we think that, you know, the sort of depth and breadth of low energy availability, and and this is where in a podcast it's awful for me because I'm a very visual person and my hands are flying around. But, you know, if we look at sort of, I'm going to say the depth of low energy availability, it seems that women, it may take less time and a lesser extent of low energy availability to see a negative outcome, whereas with some men, they can go sort of deeper into low energy availability and for longer before they see the same negative health consequences. So I think in the red flag is if we continue to, you know, not really include women in in this area of research health will suffer you know and it's not just about health as in you know we're going to break somebody because I think you know when we think historically of the female athlete triad and bones and it's a bone injury that's sort of a you know a consequence to me where you're broken but I think health shouldn't just be broken not broken and it's a spectrum so I think actually if we focus and, and we include women you know in gut health and supplementation and deficiencies and all aspects of nutrition we'll have better health not just avoiding injury we'll have better health and we know that better health is better training it is better performance in the long term so I think you know we will really allow the whole goal here is to allow any female athlete to achieve her potential on any day whether it's that day of her menstrual cycle because she takes a hormonal contraceptive because she's pregnant it's about putting them in the best position to be at, you know, that optimal level. So I think for me, it's it's very, you know, related to health. But it's also as well, I guess, another small tangent. I promise it won't be long. It was interesting, I think, when we looked at the women's football team, the American women's football team, um, and, you know, they'd sort of started to think about, you know, they were one of the first teams to publicly say, so I'm not saying they were the first team to do it, but I think they were quite public about starting to consider menstrual cycles and hormones into their practice. And for me, I don't think they did anything sort of in practice that was different than what anybody else was doing. What I think was the game changer is that the athletes themselves, the female players felt valued And I'm not going to call it a placebo effect, but it's that type of thing. For the first time, people, practitioners were coming to them saying, tell me about your menstrual cycles. And before that, nobody was asking about that. And, you know, it was almost something to be embarrassed about. So I think as well as these performance and health benefits, potential health benefits, I think it makes female athletes feel valued, that nothing now is is off, you know, out of bounds. Nothing is off topic. You know, if you're a practitioner and you're asking me how I slept, why should it be any different if you say, you know, how regular do you menstruate? OK, you're not menstruating and you should be. Oh, let's look at energy availability and so on. So I, I think that's a big part. Well-being, feeling valued and feeling equal to their sort of counterparts, you know, sportsmen. That, that, I think that's a, a, big, a big thing for me.
0: No, I think you'll. Yeah. And I love a point there is particularly in practice. It's good to talk. and you know a lot comes out of that and i think yeah historically it's been a bit frightening as a male practitioner to even delve into that conversation of how are your hormones today sort of thing but but that's where where we're at now speaking of which so in the paper on substrate metabolism during exercise we're introduced to something which i i hadn't heard this phrase before which was sexual dimorphism and sexual dimorphism of of energy metabolism and in particular. You know, the impact that this has on women's hormonal status, specifically on substrate utilization, is something that I think is particularly interesting. This was a particular paper I found uh, of interest. Now, um, to divide this between the both of you, Kirsty, can you tell us what does that term even mean, sexual dimorphism, particularly in this context? And then, Jose, we'll move on to you where you can tell us a bit about how that might impact actual substrate metabolism, for example.
1: Oh, finally, I've got a I've got a question that I can answer very briefly. <laughs> so that sort of sexual dimorphism um, that that was sort of spoken about in that papers that paper and actually in other papers that that particular group of authors have have written. They they really are experts in the topic. It really just means that you know we're seeing different responses so the opposite response in sort of males and females so it's a dimorphism there's a, a separation you know in, in in terms of sort of sex response and, and and we use this term actually in in things like cognitive function as well so you know we we see a, it it's it's really just a, a very nice and, and fancy way of saying they have different responses between sexes it, it's sort of polarized if it goes up in men it goes down in women if it goes up in women it goes down in men so so that what that means and so a short answer, which is unheard of for me. So I'm glad you've asked me that bit, but I'll pass it Well, it's on. great
0: because it's an exemplar of, of why we need to be having this conversation because we can't just assume that it's the same in, in, every, in every athlete, male or, or female. Isn't that right, Jose? I mean, what are your thoughts on this? You've, you've spent a lot of time looking at athletes and, and more than most on female athletes, as you've, as you've already said earlier. How is this relevant to this conversation that we're having today?
2: Yeah, well, I think in, in relation to what you were asking before and, and sort of substrate use, I think there's evidence to show that sort of females rely a little bit more on utilization during exercise than, than men. Yeah, I mean, that, that that it is a statistically significant difference. It doesn't mean that the magnitude is, is huge in terms of the difference. There is a, a difference, but the magnitude doesn't seem to be like massive when it comes to sort of Skeletal muscle glycogen that is super important, as we mentioned before, for performance. You know, when you look at the data sort of has been published sort of cross sectionally, it doesn't seem that really there is a huge difference in terms of the, the, the capacity of, of, of females to, to store uh, skeletal muscle glycogen, but we need more data on that. And uh, So I think again, this is this goes, I, I might be like a bit of a broken record here, but I think we need more and more evidence to say, you know, what what are the implications of this? So one of the uh, going and going back to, to to your previous question, I think just for me is like the, the the beauty of physiology, which makes this area so fascinating in terms of how things are are different. But I think we still need to tie, you know, the, the differences that we see at a hormonal, hormonal and physiological level to performance outcomes, and we need a lot more, as uh, Kirsty would uh, have highlighted, is quality research in terms of like looking at the differences in, in in performance.
0: When you read across these papers, you know we're we're learning, of course, about females in various capacities, but you know the effects of estrogen and progesterone fluctuations across the menstrual cycle and its impact on various things including uh, fluid and electrolyte balance again another great paper there that i read as part of that but again one concludes that and goes well okay uh, there are impacts of these things but how relevant is it to our day-to-day advice kirsty is it again a, a case of look we just don't have enough information on this it is significant but we don't know how significant yet
1: yeah, I I think I think that probably is it. it it's being mindful. I, so I think you could argue, you know, why do I need to read the special edition? Is everybody just going to conclude we don't have enough evidence? And so therefore all bets are off. We know nothing. That isn't the case. So I think the way that we wanted the papers to to read and, and hence sort of the title of what we know, what we don't know and why is that each of those papers, although they, they discuss the limited, you know, available literature, although many of them or all of them conclude we're not there yet they get you thinking about why that might be a consideration or why there might be a difference in, in females or or even in, in different types of females. And I think that's what you bring into practice. So you might not have the answer as in if you drink this volume or if you eat this or you time your carbohydrate here or whatever. We don't have those answers. But what we do have is an open mind. Actually, do I need to do something different for you? And, you know, and what might that be? So it will take a little bit of sort of, practitioner investigation but if you close your mind off to that and you just think I'm taking the published literature from data derived from men and I'm going to make it fit for women then I think you're missing a trick so yeah we are still in that sort of as I say that space where you know, we're not going to stand still. We're not going to wait for, you know, high quality evidence. We are going to move forward. And moving forward for me is going with an open mind. So I said about, you know, asking about lived experiences, which you, which I think absolutely. So keep, so keep that. That's point one. But point two is as a practitioner, having an open mind to, I read that paper, it explains to me why there might be a sex difference. And so therefore, although they haven't told me what to do, if there is one, I'm going there, open-minded. I'm looking for that. I'm mindful of that potential, and I'm going to then address that if that's what I encounter. And um, so, I think they would be the two things: sort of asking about lived experiences and being an open-minded practitioner, opening your mind to potential sex differences or within sort of women and um, differences. I feel like I'm not articulating that well. I think we need. I need some new language around these within women difficulties. But yeah, I'll, I'll have to develop some new terms. But I, I hopefully you, you get what I mean.
0: I do, but that's what makes this so interesting, is because there is an issue there, isn't there? There is a concern, there is a need to address this, and that's why we need more research, we need more evidence, and we don't just need any research, we need more quality research, because it's clearly difficult to wade our way through all of this you know evidence that exists out there and actually determine how much of it actually is relevant and some of it some of it seems to be knocking on the door of of probably the right doors and some of it is a bit misleading maybe and partly is that because some of some of the maybe the lower quality research is just easier to do is that part of the issue there is that what's going on
1: yeah, I mean, for sure. The, the sort of uh, what I'm going to sort of say, uh, the lower quality studies. And again, I, I said there's a, a huge, you know, a, a big influx, a large increase in the volume of papers. And actually the speed they're coming at worries me because to do, a, a you know, a well conducted high quality study takes time. And they're just coming so quickly. I already almost know before I've read them that there are probably going to be methodological sort of shortcuts. So, yeah, you're right. High quality studies. They take time. they They take money. That's the other thing, you know, because of the sort of repeated measures aspect, you know, the the multiple time points, the outcomes usually, you know, to be high quality, you need the hormones measured in blood, you know, so it's costly, it's time consuming. And and please, you know, I think in the past, I, I may have badly articulated this. So, so if you give me two or three sentences to set the record straight. What I will say is I think there are a lot of well-intentioned researchers out there, and maybe I haven't given them enough credit in the past. People aren't, researchers aren't setting out with the intention to flood the market with low-quality research. They're well-intentioned. They want to help, you know, and and hats off to, you know, anybody who's going to change their focus, learn about the underlying endocrinology physiology associated with women, try and implement that in the study. Absolute credit to anyone doing that. And as I say, they're well-intentioned but it's about slowing down and it's about taking our time and I'd rather see fewer high quality studies come out you know and I'd even like to read on social media about people who are going I'm doing this study give me a year and it's like cool you know that to me gives me more confidence it settles my nerves more than the papers that are popping out every week that were conducted you know in three weeks time frame and and just have cut some corners so as I say Whilst I am critical of, you know, the quality of some studies, I'm not critical of the researchers. I, I do give them credit and I do understand how difficult it is. But I would say, let's slow down. Let's try and maybe come together as researchers. If we work together, we'll get bigger end numbers, better powered studies. We can pool our resources. But yeah, let's focus on increasing the quality of the studies, because actually, I don't know, like I'm 20 something years into this area. And and now I know how to rate the quality of studies in this area. It must be a minefield for people new to the area or practitioners. How do you ascertain yourself, whether or not the quality is good, and whether or not you should be confident in those findings and change your practice. And I, I think that's really difficult. But you know, I guess the last bit to the story is because there's such an appetite for this, because we're also well-intentioned, because we're rushing to bridge this research and knowledge gap, social media and actually just media, the, the media in general are picking up on these papers and, you know, big punchy headlines, do this and you will cure-all, you know, fix everything in female sports. And that's also causing problems. So, yeah, I, I don't know how, you know, the the sort of media and how sort of people who are maybe a little new to the area, how they're navigating this. But, yeah, it, it, it can be difficult. And, and And certainly you don't make friends in the scientific community by criticising people's quality. But we do. We've all got to get on board. High quality, confidence in the finding, let's do the best for female athletes
0: yeah well that look i said right at the beginning of this podcast you know my thing here is is largely about how do we look at all this information or read interpret and move things around so that we can determine the relevance of that as it relates to the advice and recommendations we're we're, we're aiming to give very specific people in very specific situations and like the late Prof Tipton would always say is, you know, you, you need to be skeptical and open-minded. And that's not an easy thing to do because in order to be skeptical, you need a little bit of knowledge and training or a lot actually. And to be open-minded, you need to know where the limits of, of your open mindedness needs to be. It all gets rather complicated, but it is only by us having these conversations where there are very static limits to information that's printed into a a paper or a textbook chapter what I aim to do with these podcasts for example is bring it to life a bit more and for us to talk about these things and you know we've looked at different things from different angles and you know there's no I think we all agree that there isn't necessarily a right or wrong there's just we need more information for a start and we need to differentiate the quality we've only scratched the surface clearly which is sort of a conclusion we have on, on almost every single podcast i've done with even on topics that people believe are to be very firmly entrenched like you know the quality of protein like it's got to be animal or or dairy based not necessarily <laughs> you know i think all all of that is what makes this so fascinating but look i mean we've been talking for well over an hour now and we should draw this to a, a conclusion soon and and i want people to read the special editions are you know they're well worth spending the time to get into but there's a couple of little topics i think the listeners will want us to get into particularly the consumers that there are there are some people that listen to this podcast who are athletes and or early stage researchers uh, undergraduate students and so on you haven't necessarily gotten to this point of understanding this information and um i mean jose there is one area that is that you're at the forefront of which we've briefly touched on which is you know, this, this idea of relative energy deficiency. You've both done tons of work on this. We've done podcasts on this, but it is even after, what is it, 30 years now or something that we sort of associate low energy availability. There's eating disorders, there's menstrual dysfunctions, there's impaired bone health in athletes and, and so on. Where where are we with with this level of knowledge, Jose? And is it as relevant as it was five years ago is it becoming more important? Do you feel it's going down sort of a pathway of distraction on this topic? Where, where, where do you feel we're at with this?
2: I must highlight that there's no conflict of interest in my answers, but I must say that I think it's still very relevant. <laughs> so, uh, no, yeah, I think it's very, very topical. So people are very interested in in, in the topic. I think... It's a very relevant as ever, really. I really, really like this area of research, and I'm, I'm putting pretty much all of my energy into developing this this area of energy of, of of energy availability at the moment and our understanding when it comes to sort of female specific, or implications that are specific for females. I, th- I think this is like super, super relevant. We still have a, a lot to understand of like you know how the knowledge that we have from laboratory-based studies translate of what happens happens on, on the field. And my understanding, so my experience, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding in the sort of stakeholders, coaches, athletes in terms of what's happening, a lot of like black and white thinking, a lot of still not understanding of what represents to have or not have sort of the regular menses and so on. And the implications of low energy availability for performance and health, which these are interrelated, but you know, it's not necessarily that uh, low energy availability or automatically w- would result in impaired performance, but it can impair performance. This is something that we still need to do a lot of research about. In terms of the importance in general of all this research, not only in lower interval availability, but in general in like uh, female athletes, I think I'm going a little bit of uh, not not off topic, but talking a little bit outside of the the the. St- strictly the science of it, but in terms of how we apply this science is like normalizing the conversation with athletes and coaches and, you know, all, all the people that are sort of on the ground, working face to face with athletes. And something that came to my mind when Kirsty mentioned about the conversations that she has with the athletes that I think are super relevant, but she's very comfortable talking about these with the athletes. And I, what I see, and I'm very comfortable myself talking about this thing with, with, with female athletes, but something that I see, for example, is that a lot of coaches are male coaches, and they, they, they fear talking about the, the menstrual cycle, for example. This is like, oh, is this, this thing that is taboo? And I think it's a, a lot about the, the work that we have to do is like do more quality research in, in female athletes and nutrition for female athletes and, and sort of make this taboo di- disappear. Because I think, you know, again, like I think there's, there's beauty in physiology in general, particularly, you know, the, the, the menstrual cycle is, such sort of masterpiece of, of nature in terms of like what it represents physiologically. And I think it should be seen as not something that is in the middle, but it's something beautiful to be understood, to be embraced and to really be worried off when there's lack of that. So this is reminds me a little bit of Conan Doyle's basket of what was the hand of Baskervilles. Yeah. Yeah. That is, you know, the, the, the signal is when the dog is not barking. It's the same with the female athlete and the menstrual cycle. And this is something that I think we should make a lot more people aware of. And the likes of Kirsty and a lot of other good researchers out there are doing amazing work in sort of highlighting these things.
0: That's brilliant. I mean, look, guys, there has to be a limit to where we take this conversation. And I'm aware of so many gaps. I will signpost to the numerous podcasts that I've done with you guys and some other of my great guests that have come on, which will tackle some of these topics in more detail. And I've also hoping to get a number of the authors of some of these papers to get into some of these topics in, in more detail. So we're certainly not done on this topic. But just there is a, a quick topic I wanted to finish up with, which particularly on social media or whatever seems to always be a popular one, of course, and that is the topic of supplementation. It's always pushed for various reasons, and it may or may not be relevant to human performance. But, y- you know, as far as females are concerned, Kirsty, you know, where are we at in terms of evidence and supplementation and nutrition for Get female it. athletes?
1: what a question um <laughs> I end with the best bit, <laughs> the best bit. I'm gonna quote you back to you well I love I love the way you always say test don't guess <laughs> and I think that that holds true doesn't it Bradley in general you know of course if somebody is deficient and that warrants you know supplementation then then absolutely so so I would go with that as a guiding principle I mean of course not all supplementation is is for deficiency While, well, or I'm thinking more sort of clinical deficiency but for one, for words, so so I guess the more sort of general sports supplementation and and sort of swapping out maybe a food group for for a supplement, yeah. The short answer is we're we're not there yet. I think you know one of the the papers is on sort of sodium bicarb, for example, and and there's just such a lack of evidence. Again, even the studies that are out there are, are sort of hindered by you know maybe. The groups weren't homogenous, you know, and so on and so on and so on. So I said I was going to give a short answer and I didn't. So I would say test don't guess for the more sort of clinical deficiencies, quoting you back to yourself. And then for the other ones, (laughs) there's probably a good name for that that I I can't think of at the minute. But for the other sort of sports type supplementation, I would say we're, we're not there yet. I would still take that more guided by the sport approach. Who was it? Oh, I I, I always like to give people credit for their sayings when I steal them, um, but I can't remember who it was. But they said that in the supplementation sort of industry, there's a shrink it and pink it attitude so that they take the same supplement and they stick it in a pink jar for women, <laughs> for female athletes. And that makes it more appealing. So yeah, let's definitely avoid the shrink it and pinkish attitude. And yeah, let's be sort of more pragmatic. And actually there's, that paper recently oh god i'm probably pushing people and papers all together into a big mess but i think you you, you can probably help me didn't graham close recently i put a paper because the saying is isn't it food first but not always. And that I really liked that. And, and so I think, yeah, there are better people to answer this question to me, but maybe you can pick out a few sort of things from, from what I've said there in in that jumbled mess. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, that, well, so food first, but not only is the podcast, uh, we did that a few podcasts ago. <laughs> so there you go. But see, that's the thing that comes together. You know, I know, I, I don't say it so often now, but you know, I had for many years, my obsession on the, you know, the idea of context and why it's relevant and it is an entire chapter in my doctoral thesis about why context matters. I still—I've I,
1: I, stolen that from you in many presentations. I, I, I know.
0: Me. I've even seen people like Graham Close used to would do lectures, and you talk about context with a little picture of me on the top right-hand corner. I mean, it's not like I invented the idea, but it—but it is—it but is, it is important. And I guess that's you know the the ability to contextualise to make it all relevant is what we're after, particularly if you're in the business of advising elite athletes. You're in the business of giving people advice and recommendations where they're hoping to achieve benefits from that. You know, it does matter this stuff. And I guess, yes, there's the do no harm aspect, but that's not so easy. Like Jose was just talking about with relative energy deficiency, and you've obviously talked about it and its impact on things like bone health and various other things. There is an implication to people's health, not just their performance, but to their health if we don't get this stuff wrong. But all in all, it's been a fascinating conversation with you guys. It's by no means the end of the conversation. I will, like I say, get people to read these various papers. I want them to listen to the podcast and we'll definitely have you guys back on in the near future. But at this point, I think we'll bring this to a close. So Kirsty, thank you so much for all of your knowledge and enthusiasm and, and expertise and holding as many punches back as I know you you mm-hmm. felt that you needed to. And Jose, same, you know, all that immense knowledge and experience. And thank you both for, for spearheading this, what is a really important collection of papers in this special edition. So thank you very much. Thank you, Lauren. Okay, guys. Well, thank you for that. I'm going to say goodbye. Uh, take care, everyone. And it's, uh, it's been a pleasure bringing another episode of We Do Science to you.